First of all, mammography is not perfect. That's the bottom line. And I wish it were, but it's not perfect. It still is uh, the workhorse of what we do for breast cancer screening. The reality of it is, is that there are different groups that have different recommendations, which can make it confusing for a patient. But the way that I look at it is, is that... Welcome to the Femtech Health Podcast. I'm your host, Sherry DiBiaz. Today, we have a special guest joining us, Dr. Ames Smith, a renowned breast cancer surgeon with expertise in hereditary and genetics work. Dr. Smith shares his journey and passion for helping patients with hereditary cancer. We dive into the importance of early detection and screening for hereditary cancers, including breast, ovarian, colon, and more. Dr. Smith explains how genetic testing can provide valuable information and guide personalized care plans for patients at high risk. We also discuss the different diagnostic tools used in breast cancer detection, such as mammography, ultrasound, and MRI. Dr. Smith emphasizes the importance of a multidisciplinary approach and collaboration among healthcare providers to ensure the best outcomes for patients. So let's get started with today's episode and learn more about the advancements in breast cancer care and the importance of early detection. I'm so glad today to have Dr. Ames Smith. Dr. Ames Smith is a renowned breast cancer surgeon uh, with a specialty in um, hereditary and genetics work uh, with breast cancer. And Dr. Smith, welcome. And just tell us a little bit about your journey, your story, how you got involved in doing all of this work and what it means to you. Sure, sure. So, um, my wife and I are actually from Texas, and I did my surgery training in Houston at Baylor in Houston. And uh, then we went into private practice as a general surgeon in Austin for 22 years. And during that time frame, I just uh, developed an interest in hereditary cancer because um, it is an area where if, if a person has a mutation, then it puts them at very high risk for developing certain cancers and we can actually test for it. So really around 2010 or so, I started just uh, diving into that and I took some additional training. And then uh, I was recruited to Seattle uh, in 2012 and I was there for 10 years as the director of breast surgery at the Poly Clinic. And we started and I led the hereditary cancer risk clinic there and, and just loved it, and which was basically screening our population of patients for possible hereditary cancer. And then if appropriate, and if they were interested, we would do the testing. And then uh, for those that had a mutation, I would advise them and then help follow them up. So uh, Dr. Uh, Smith, do you feel like, you know, when you're doing, um, you know, your approaches, it changes then if someone has a more hereditary cancer as far as what you're going to do and how you do reconstruction. Tell us a little bit about that. Absolutely. Um, the thing about it is just to make very clear, this is not just looking at hereditary breast cancer. So because there's also hereditary colon cancer, ovarian, uterine, uh, even brain, um, kidney so, and this does involve both males and females. So actually I wear two hats in my practice. One hat is breast surgeon. And so that's the technical aspects of doing the cancer surgery. But the other hat is 
hereditary cancer uh, expert. And so basically what I'm doing there is looking for these mutations. And the thing is, if we find a mutation, it definitely changes what we do because we can uh, give more intensive surveillance. Uh, in some cases, we can offer risk reduction, um, risk reduction for colon cancer, risk reduction for ovarian cancer, risk reduction for breast cancer. But the whole idea is that then we know that this person has specific risks that are much higher than usual, and we can develop a care plan that allows us to really kind of follow them and, and make sure that it doesn't develop. So do you feel that people are open to this type of testing or are people nervous or fearful about it and don't want to know or don't want to understand? Uh, what does that look like? Sure. Well, there's definitely always a mix of people. And so if a patient comes to see me, I'm never pushing them to, to test, but I just want them to understand that it would be recommended or at least an option in some cases. And we don't test everyone. And there are some people that just don't want to test. Uh, but there are a lot of people that they might have a strong family history of breast cancer or a strong family history of early age colon cancer. And they're trying to find out, do I have that high risk? And so those are the people that generally would want to know. And, uh, and I think the other thing just to make clear is that there is there are federal laws that protect someone from losing their health care insurance uh, if they did test positive. So there are some built-in things there. Uh, the other um, hurdle has been cost, but the vast number of insurers will pay for testing if a patient meets certain criteria for testing. And that's usually based on their family history if they have a lot of cancer in the family. So even if somebody were paying out of pocket for this testing, it's $250. So it's really become very affordable. So if say somebody has a, you know, history of cancer in their family, you know, whether colon or breast or, or whatever that may be, um, what are you offering that then they, you know, before they do that, you know, lab work, what, it, what's your, time frame look like when if you sit sure. with them for that hour pre-testing, yes. what does that look like? Yes. So a lot of it is um, the first step is I create a pedigree and I love pedigrees. Uh, basically what it is, is it maps out the family history and it's kind of color coded. So uh, for me, with what I do, it's kind of like an EKG for a cardiologist because I can see patterns. And typically, with hereditary cancer, you would see a pattern of several generations that might be involved. So it could be grandmother had breast cancer, aunt had breast cancer, sister had breast cancer. So that would be a pattern. Uh, other patterns that we see would be, for instance, cancer on both sides or really early age cancer, like a woman might develop a breast cancer uh, at 40 or even in their 30s. And that would be what we call a red flag. So this testing is not for everyone. And, and actually, just for you to know, only about 10% of cancers have a definable genetic mutation. So the vast majority are not caused by a known mutation. Uh, but what I'm trying to do is just make sure we're not missing a mutation because that's that changes things.
And so some of our patients, you know, they just say, oh, is there a way to actually turn off my gene or suppress it? it maybe I do have that possibility. Are there things that people can do, you know, that could, you know, suppress some of this gene mutation or this gene changing happening? What, what's your feeling about that? Well, there's not currently anything that can be done about the genetics itself, because with the genetic aspect of it, that involves every cell of the body, because it's a germline thing that came down either, you know, as a result of the father's side or the mother's side. So, but there are defined things that we can do to lower risk in that setting. And the other thing too, is there are really good support groups too, if um, someone has a mutation. But for instance, um, the most common breast cancer gene mutations would be uh, BRCA1 and BRCA2. And that stands for breast cancer gene one and breast cancer gene two. That's why it's BRCA. And some people call it BRCA. You know, it's really kind of like tomato and tomato. <laughs> but, uh, but if a woman has a BRAC1 or BRAC2 mutation, then that woman would have a very high lifetime risk for breast cancer. For BRAC1, it's up to about an 87% chance of developing breast cancer in her life. And a lot of times it's at an earlier age. For BRAC2, it's up to around 84% lifetime risk. And the thing for you to know, too, is just that really my goal is to, to lower anxiety and take away fear. And it's um, with everything I do, if somebody has a breast cancer diagnosis or we find a mutation, the idea is just to take care of that person where they are. But if we know somebody has a BRCA1 or BRCA2 mutation, then there are defined care plans for them. So usually we would strongly consider starting an MRI at a very young age, usually at age 25. And then we would, and, and none of these things would be dictated to them. I mean, it's always a shared plan, but uh, but the reason we would start MRI is that there's such a significant risk of developing breast cancer that we'd really want to keep an eye on it. And so then we would also do annual mammograms starting at age 30, for instance. Uh, but the other thing about BRCA1 and BRCA2 is that they're both very high risk for ovarian cancer. And so that's the one that I think a lot of people don't realize or think about. And so, um, and the problem with ovarian cancer is we don't really have a good screen for that uh, because you can do a pelvic ultrasound and a CA-125, which is a blood test. But in my own practice, I've seen two women that had normal CA-125, normal pelvic ultrasound, and they went for a prophylactic removal of the tubes and ovaries, and they both had ovarian cancer. So, so it's not reliable. The screening for ovarian cancer is not reliable. And the problem is, if somebody picks up ovarian cancer late, it's harder to treat. So for that reason, if somebody has a BRCA1 or BRCA2 mutation, we do recommend that they would see a gynecologist and talk about you know, uh, the option of risk-reducing removal of the tubes and ovaries by a certain age. 
So in general, Dr. Ames, if you know a person doesn't know any of this information, if they have these genes, et cetera, when are you suggesting that people have their first mammos? And if if maybe they know, oh, my mom did have breast cancer, but I don't know what gene she had or did not have, like right. when would you when would you tell them? to start that process compared to maybe somebody who never had any family history of any breast cancer, et cetera. What, what is your time frame that you look at for people in that? Right. Well, it's very interesting because um, I've been managing breast cancer patients since 1990. So I've treated a whole lot of women with breast cancer. And I actually have gone on local TV stations to talk about mammography in Austin and then also some in Seattle. Um, and I used to be pretty dogmatic because I used to just have a number and I would just say, this is what we advise, you know, annual mammogram starting at age 40. The reality of it is, is that there are different groups that have different recommendations, which can make it confusing for a patient. But the way that I look at it is, is that First of all, mammography is not perfect. That's the bottom line. And I wish it were, but it's not perfect. It still is uh, the workhorse of what we do for breast cancer screening. So if a woman is average risk, has no family history, and remember too, family history is only one risk factor. There are other risk factors too. Um, alcohol can increase risk. Tobacco can increase risk. Obesity and postmenopausal women can increase risk. Um, a number of other factors. Uh, if a woman has had radiation therapy younger than age, uh, uh, at a very young age, like in their 20s or teens, uh, that can predispose. But if a woman has no risk factors at all and is very healthy, then many of the recommendations recommend starting mammography annually at age 40. Uh, the U.S. Preventive Service Task Force has, has recommended mammogram every other year at age 40. Um, you know, there was actually a large study out of Canada that has 25-year follow-up that is really interesting. It was one of the original mammography trials. There have been about eight worldwide randomized mammography trials that showed relative mortality reduction for every age screened uh, starting in the 40s. But this large trial from Canada, which was had a rating of fair to good in terms of the quality of their trial, actually randomized women to mammography plus a clinical exam versus clinical exam alone. And they found out that there was no mortality difference between those two. So, so the thing is, now there's still value in mammography but I don't think the benefit in terms of mortality reduction is necessarily as big as we have thought. Um, the thing about it is if a woman has high risk, then I definitely would recommend uh, more, more intensive mammography and starting at an earlier age. We usually would start that 10 years younger than the earliest age of breast cancer in the family. Um, so, Part of it depends on that woman and looking at pros and cons of doing mammography. You know, really the main downside of mammography, which is not a major thing, but it's false positives. And so what that means is that the mammogram can find things so we don't know what they are. And that can lead to a biopsy recommendation, you know, by, done by a needle, uh, but then the biopsy is benign. So that's called a false positive. 
Um, so that can cause anxiety and, you know, um, can uh, just it's associated with having that procedure and all that. Um, but if a woman has a strong family history of breast cancer, that's an obvious still, it's a benefit. Rather do that and find out it's okay than not do it. So, so I think it's a little bit nuanced, you know, and I think that it also has to do with that particular patient's risk tolerance or what they value the most. So if their value is to not miss things, you know, then starting mammogram and doing it annually is definitely a good idea, you know? And um, so that's how I would state that. I would say most guidelines recommend starting at age 40 and doing it annually. Uh, one guideline starts at age 45. One guideline starts at age 40 and does it every other year. I think if somebody's confused about that, they can always talk with me. <laughs> it's a, it's a little bit nuanced, but again, a woman who has a sister with breast cancer at 27 and my mom had breast cancer, that's a totally different situation. You know, first we're thinking, is there hereditary cancer? And if not, we still would do more intensive family or screening based on that family history. So, uh, Dr. Ames, one of the things that always concerns me a little bit is that, you know, once a woman is not of maternal age anymore, you know, she's not having babies anymore. And a lot of times then she's not going into having a clinical exam by somebody who actually is tracking her breast care. And, you know, a lot of my moms now, you know, they might see a midwife uh, who is not an RN. So they're not maybe having that tracking happening. They're not going to OBGYN. They're not seeing their PCP provider, you know, so what, what, a you know, I love the fact that, you know, you're talking about, hey, mammos and clinical actual, you know, evaluation. So if a person is not really having those, you know, like clinical timeframes with somebody, did any of the studies make a difference between maybe a woman checking herself once a month compared to like literally a physician uh, or, you know, midwife, uh, RN, et cetera, checking? Like, was there right. a difference in yes. there? Well, there were actually two studies that looked at breast self-exam, and ultimately uh, that was uh, considered not something that would be valuable. And here's the thing, though. Here's the thing to know. The reason about that is that it led to a lot of women unnecessarily stressing about something. And then surgeons might say, well, let's take it out, even though really, honestly, it probably didn't need to be. And mm -hmm. so so I, I still, what we encourage now, the current recommendation in Lingo is breast awareness. And so that's a great question. I'm glad you brought that out because if we could teach every woman just this very basic thing, that would really help. So. Here's my discussion with every woman I see is, uh, so I'm inviting them into my office right now. <laughs> uh, basically, we're observing. So just observing the breast, uh, making being aware that a single bloody discharge or watery discharge that comes out on its own through the nipple, that should be evaluated. And so unfortunately, a lot of women stress and they squeeze the nipple and they're trying to see, do I have a discharge? I totally recommend against that because um, squeezing the nipple can actually cause release of oxytocin, which then elicits a discharge. 
And I've seen women that have actually traumatized the ducts and caused a bloody discharge. So, so we're talking about a spontaneous, comes out on its own, bloody or watery nipple discharge. And then the other thing would be if they ever notice that the nipple is pulled in. So because what happens is a cancer will grow, and as it grows, it pulls on the suspensory ligaments of the breast, and that pulls the skin in. So that causes the deformity, and we call that dimpling. And I actually had a woman who had a very subtle dimpling on her breast, and she said, I'm worried about that. And so I said, okay, and we got diagnostic imaging, and she had cancer. So um, so that's what you're looking for would be a retraction of the nipple where the nipple is inverting uh, or a retraction of the skin where you get dimpling. And then the other thing would be redness of the breast. So there is a uh, an especially aggressive form of breast cancer called inflammatory carcinoma, and it looks like a breast infection, uh, and it tends to come on very quickly and suddenly. And so uh, a woman might feel heaviness, uh, they might feel warmth of the breast, and they might see redness. And so that is something that can be treated. It can definitely be treated and we can, you know, have very, we can have good results with that, but we need to be aware of it quickly so that we can get aggressive treatments on board. Um, so redness of the breast, sometimes heaviness of the breast can be a clue. Um, now, the thing is with respect to breast lumps, uh, the thing is the normal breast architecture is lumpy. So because there are ducts and lobules, and so it feels kind of ropey, or I say it's like kind of like a cobblestone road. But over my career, the vast majority of cancers that could be felt were very obvious, even at small size, because they create a scarring response, and it makes it really hard like a rock. So it's really, it's not, oh, is that something? It's more like, what is that? You know, I really, I feel a rock. And that's what a breast cancer feels like. And most of the time, breast cancers are not painful, but about 5% are. And so, but here's another thing to reassure people about is that breast pain, again, most of the time is benign. And so the clues about benign breast pain would be that it comes and goes with a period if the woman is having menstrual periods, and it would be of course, typically worse premenstrually, and then it subsides. Uh, that can be on one side or the other. A lot of times it's upper outer, uh, but that's not worrisome for breast cancer. Um, breast cancer pain, typically, if there is that present, would be in one area of the breast. So, and a lot of times there might be a mass associated. So in general, then we're just sort of telling women, hey, instead of palpating all this tissue, really what we're saying is we want you to just observe the tissue right. once a month, making sure that, you know, that scanning of that visual input, that that tissue always looks the same. And that if we see things, whether it be on the skin or this dimpling, pulling or discharge or changes like that, then we're looking towards someone like you to like, oh, we need to be looked at if we're seeing those changes then happening instead of us massaging and looking all through this tissue and right. hunting around. Exactly. Now, 
Now, I say this a little bit because I see it sometimes, you know, my women will come in and suddenly say, oh, I think I have a lymph node, you know, that's swollen. And, and, and talk to us about that. When, do, when does a woman need to be worried? You know, sometimes these lymph nodes show up, you know, they're breastfeeding or, you know, maybe they had an accident and they have a bump or a lump. And should they always be looked at? Should they watch them for a period of time? Talk to us about how we know when to tell women to see a provider. Right. Well, um, the lymph nodes that we really worry about are, again, if they're hard, you know, hard like a rock or if they're rubbery, because sometimes a lymphoma can show up in the armpit. But if it's a metastasis or a spread from a breast cancer, that's usually a hard lump. But I think the most important thing there is to let every woman know that if there's any doubt, we should do diagnostic imaging because we've got the tools to check something out. So I think they should not worry needlessly. And um, most of the time, lumps they might feel are going to be benign. You know, I've had women that have felt uh, sebaceous cysts or lipomas or, you know, benign lumps. Um, and but but that's why we have people they could go to to get a check out if they needed to. Again, though, it really depends on the context, because if there are women that's had breast cancer on that side or on the other side, yes, we should check it out because it's a higher risk in that setting. If they have a strong family history of breast cancer and they feel something, it's like, OK, let's just double check. You know, uh, if it's an average risk woman, then. You know, I don't feel strongly that she has to have anything done right away, but I would say if it continues for, you know, a month or two, then it just makes sense to check it out because I would rather, I would rather err on the side of not missing something. So tell us a little bit too about, you know, these diagnostic tools and maybe the stages of why different providers utilize diagnostic tools and why we're utilizing something like an MRI versus a mammo versus ultrasound, et cetera. Sure. Well, uh, again, and now we're talking about diagnostic and not screening. So the big difference there is screening Correct. is if a woman does not have uh, symptoms. Uh, First of all, if there is a new lump or a new symptom like a discharge, we always will get a mammogram. That's part of it. Because what you're looking for with the mammogram is, are there any other findings uh, or anything that might point to the cause of whatever that symptom is? So we look for a mass on mammogram or microcalcifications. And the calcifications would be something that you couldn't see well or reliably by ultrasound. So that's really only seen by mammogram, and that could point to a cancer that could be missed otherwise. So, uh, so mammogram always. Um, ultrasound frequently is going to be part of that um, diagnostic tool set also. Um, if a woman is younger than 30, a lot of times we'll just do a, an ultrasound as a first test, and we try to be very selective about doing mammography in a young woman like that. Um, MRI really is the most sensitive of all of our tests. So if we're trying to do something that will give us complete confidence, almost complete confidence that everything's okay, then MRI would be the thing to do. The problem is it's expensive. So an insurance won't pay for it unless there's a real reason to do it. So we do use MRI in women if they're diagnosed with breast cancer uh, because 
that is the way that we check and make sure that if we have one cancer here, we don't have anything anywhere else. So that would definitely be done there. Uh, the other time would be if somebody has a high-risk breast cancer gene mutation and they have symptoms, we would want to take the extra step and go on and do an MRI in that setting. So, um, and then those are, those are really the most important diagnostic tools. Um, we really aren't doing ductogram too often anymore. Yes. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> mean to interrupt you. <laughs> no, that's fine. <laughs> uh, um, no, I was just going to say, so when we look at those three different diagnostic pieces, then like percentages wise, I, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I wanted no. to know like percentage wise, what do you feel like, you know, the rate is of like a mammo compared to like, oh, if I don't see anything that maybe directs me to the MRI, would I just never do that MRI or, or would I go there if I'm hunting because maybe they have you know, a hereditary factor? Right. I would say that um, it's really important to be a, an advocate, a self-advocate, and really recognize, too, that imaging can be wrong. So uh, especially with dense breast tissue, uh, that can hide a breast cancer. So the sensitivity drops way down with, which means the ability to detect a cancer in a woman if, they, if she has dense tissue. So most of the time, the ultrasound would pick up a mass. So if a woman's having a diagnostic mammogram and ultrasound, that's not likely to miss something. Uh, but again, depending on the context, if it's a woman that we're really worried about, um, and especially if she has family history and dense breast tissue, then most of the time insurance would cover that because she's going, we have a risk calculator that we use to really decide what is the level of risk? And if it's a woman that normal risk or average risk is about 12% lifetime risk for a woman in the general population. But if a woman has over 20% lifetime risk, then most insurers would pay for an MRI, you know, in certain settings. I see. Thank you. That just helps clarify a little bit because many times, you know, women go to their provider and maybe they're wondering, oh, this time, you know, I just did a mammo and no ultrasound. And, you know, the next time all of a sudden I did a mammo and an ultrasound, oh, should I be worried? Like, is there something that signals that? So that you're kind of saying that mammo and ultrasound maybe go together more if they yes. see something maybe more risky. Right. Absolutely. I think if a woman is having symptoms or if there's a concern based on anything that there might be a cancer there, that's going to be the go-to is diagnostic mammogram and ultrasound. And, you know, in a lot of cases, I would feel that mammogram would not tell us the whole picture. So. Yeah. So then anyway. you kind of step in with the ultrasound to like clarify, et cetera. Right. So. Right. And yeah, I so have had women too, who are really afraid or very reluctant to do mammograms. And first of all, that is their choice. And I'm never going to be, you know, guilt tripping them or saying, oh, why aren't you doing that? Or that type of thing. Uh, I do. And I think that um, some of the women that have been reluctant to have mammograms are worried about radiation risk and of mammography. And there is a very, very low dose of radiation with mammography. So 
that's why I would never do it in a really young woman. And I wouldn't do it. You know, I would try to minimize the amount of mammography that a woman was having um, without just deliberation and thinking about it. So, but I have seen women who may have a symptom and they say, well, I'll just get an ultrasound. And the thing is, the problem with that is it might miss some things because there are some things the mammogram could find the ultrasound might miss. And there are some things the mammogram could miss that the ultrasound might find. Uh, but then if they're both normal and the patient still is convinced that she has a finding or if I have a suspicion, then that's where if, if there are other factors that would warrant doing the next step and doing an MRI, we might consider that. But if insurance doesn't pay for it, then that could be expensive. And right. I don't know exactly the cost nowadays, but it's, you know, over a thousand dollars probably. <laughs> yes. Generally speaking, I think that's right. No, yes. that helps, that helps to clarify too, because that was going to be one of my next questions is that, you know, what do you feel about so many women who are so nervous now? Oh, I don't want to have a mammogram every other year. If they don't right. have any hereditary or family history of things, um, are you feeling like, hey, they could stretch that out? Or do you really feel like, no, you know, uh, you know, even if they don't have any risk factors, they, they, they should have it every other year. Tell me what you feel about that. Well, it's very interesting because um, I come from a background of what we call allopathic medicine, and which means traditional medical school residency, you know, um, reading the medical literature and all that. But I've, my eyes have been open a little bit to the naturopathic world and the functional medicine world. And, and I'm very interested in that because I think the bottom line is what is true, you know, and what is beneficial for the patient. So in that context, really most of my career, I had discounted thermography completely. But I recently had two thermographers that approached me and they said, you know, basically let's talk. And so one of them gave me a whole bunch of literature about thermography. And I actually think that there's, there is very potential benefit to it. You know, I mean, the uh, thing about thermography is that's infrared technology that's looking at fluctuations in the surface temperature and also can assess the vasculature of the breast. And uh, breast cancers as they grow, cause increased vasculature. It's called neovascularity, and that can also increase the local temperature in that area. And so they also can notice patterns in the breast about high hormone patterns where it looks like there's excess estrogen specifically in the breast tissue. And that can be an indicator in itself of increased risk. And so, because the thing that drives breast cancer for women is lifelong exposure to estrogen uh, because that causes proliferation of the tissue and, you know, ultimately uh, a mutation can occur and then that forms a cancer. So, so I do think that's something that uh, really could be considered. Um, with thermography, they have a similar rating scale like we do in, in standard imaging where it's a TH system um, it's basically a thermal score. And so if a woman gets a TH1 or 2, that means they think everything's benign, you know, come back in a year or whenever you come back. If they have a TH3, it means, you know, there's some concern about this. We're not too concerned, but let's do a follow-up in six months. 
But if they have a TH4 or 5, that's usually a, an asymmetric finding where there's a finding on one side and not on the other. And what they found is that there's a fairly significant correlation between an abnormal thermogram and then the woman goes on and has diagnostic imaging like I've described, and then they find something. So I would say that if a woman is, is concerned about mammography, which I still consider standard, I really do. I mean, I, I haven't gotten to a point where I'm just dismissing it because I do think there's a lot of benefit. Um, but if a woman just says, I don't want to do it, I'm not going to do it, then I think thermography is a good idea. The other thing that I've seen is that there's the ability to do whole breast ultrasound. It's called automated whole breast ultrasound. And there, um, there are several places, uh, both in Spokane and also in Liberty Lake. And, uh, and basically they do whole automated whole breast ultrasound. There's also a team that does handheld whole breast ultrasound by the technician and they do a great job. So, so that's another option would be combining thermography and ultrasound. Uh, the thermographers say that if you're doing thermography, they really want a woman to have some other anatomic study. And so, because thermography really is a functional study, it's looking at vascular patterns and looking at hormone excess in the breasts and things like that, or asymmetries. Uh, but mammogram and ultrasound are anatomic. They're looking for masses or calcifications or things like that. Yes, correct. So, you know, in some of the work that I've seen, you know, like looking at a, like a whole breast tissue you know, where do you see the majority of cancers in a breast? If you like made it into four quadrants, right, where would right. be the region? And some of the work that I've seen, it's kind of in this upper, you know, upper that outer, upper, upper yeah, outer. Yeah. yeah, the upper, upper outer, outer quadrant. Yes. Yes. And, and and so why is that? Why, why is that happening in that way? Is there some um, information or educational things that help us understand that better? I really don't know why. I really don't know why. I just know, you know, statistically, that's where it tends to be. Yeah, but I, I've seen uh, that as well. Yeah, but and that's typically a pretty easy region to treat too. Right. So surgically, right. and right. Uh, and I think one thing too, while I'm thinking about it, is just to throw out there is that, um, and a, another benefit I just want to bring out about mammography <laughs> is that a benefit is is that if we pick up a cancer earlier which is a big goal. Not only does it increase the chance of curing that cancer, but it also lowers the likelihood that we would have to remove a lot of lymph nodes under the arm. Because that's the big deal in breast cancer, in my opinion, is how do we treat this and then lower what we call morbidity, you know, so they don't have the after effects as much. And so We've had some real big advancements in lymph node surgery, you know, including mm -hmm. sentinel lymph node biopsy, where we can just go in and remove a few targeted lymph nodes. Mm -hmm. And actually, I've um, come into contact with plastic surgeons that do what's called lymph venous bypass. And so that literally, after removing a lot of lymph nodes, they can re-implant the lymph system into the venous system. And that's a huge benefit. And kind of it's, one of my things that I'm focused on in this part of my career is just trying to not only cure the cancer, but have the person come out and have a, 
a good cosmetic result, but also a good functional result. So that they, I, when they go through it, it's like, okay, <laughs> did I really have surgery? <laughs> so. And this, I think, is a good conversation for us to have about this lymph uh, vein anastomosis that occurs, is that, you know, understanding and knowing that people do weigh better, not not only reducing their um, lymphedema risk long term, but also improving their functional outcomes, because right. we know that limb or that region isn't under, you know, that much duress, because we've actually stabilize the system um, much better. So I love right. it that, that you're looking at higher quality of lives because we're, we're actually, the surgical procedures are so much better and our diagnostic work is so much better and we're giving people longer uh, quality of life afterwards, but are we giving them a good enough functional quality of life? Right. Right. And th those right. things really add into their ability to have a higher functional um, quality of life. And I think that's where your and my work kind of intersect as me. Yes. yes. Yeah. As uh, myself, seeing people before surgical interventions and then a, a post-op as well, so that we can intervene and help people move right. along to the things right. that they desire and want. And that's kind of why it's so fun for me uh, to know you and to work together with you. Right. Uh, Smith, it's an amazing, I love it. you know, puzzle piece for us because I feel passionate, you know, about us having a community of care for our uh, breast cancer patients. And then, you know, knowing like, hey, they're gonna get taken care of in this beautiful continuum of care. Right. So right, and the thing is, that's really interesting about it is we have the technology to do that, even if you're in Coeur d'Alene and I'm in Sandpoint. And so I think the thing is, is to hit the pause button and really think about how do you deliver quality of care to each patient? And so, one of the things that I really think is helpful and important would be to have the plastic surgeon on the same call because we're all, so basically you have the whole care continuum and we do that as part of a tumor board, but I think there are some ways to innovatively do even that better because uh, the thing is, for instance, there are different oncology groups. So there's, there's radiation oncology, medical oncology, but some of them might be in Spokane or some might be in Coeur d'Alene or might be in Sandpoint or might be somewhere else in Idaho. But, you know, the thing is, I still could be treating them, but then be involved and engaged with their medical and radiation oncologist, even if I'm not driving to that place. Because ultimately, one of the, you know, things that delights a patient is to be able to get treatment where they are. So... So basically, their care follows them. And obviously, surgery isn't quite like that because I'm going to be in one location where I'm doing surgery. Correct. But that's the neat thing about it is pulling together and working as a team. And I think that's why we're so excited to be involved with you uh, here in Idaho and Washington because we realize to treat people with breast cancer, we need the continuum of care. We need the interaction of brilliant minds like yourself as we move forward. So Dr. Smith, right. thank you so much for talking to me today. I thank really you. appreciate it. And um, we will uh, look forward to our adventure as we move forward, taking care of women, yeah. women with breast cancer in our communities. Me too. And, and actually one final quick thing is that I think education is such a big part of it. 
And as we learn new things, the important thing is to educate the whole team. So I'm not just keeping that in me. It's like, okay, team, this is the latest. Let's talk about it. So anyway, that's kind of, that's part of it. I love it. Thank you so much yeah. for your time. And I will look Thank forward you. to talking to you again. Likewise. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Okay. Have a good day. You too.